And welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus. John, what's going on, my man? Man, Steve, you know it's that time. It's that time to join the Scholar Program because it is popping because that's what the people want. The people want to be a part of the clubhouse. They want to be a part of the program. So it's time. If you haven't joined, it is now. You must do it. Yes, we have 300 plus coaches in the clubhouse just hanging out, talking track. Oh, it's what a else? tipping point, man. 300, that's it. I remember I, when we first started, I was like, we get 300, this would be a pretty fun, exciting uh, community. And now we're there and oh, watch out. Yeah, I love it. And if you look at, you know what I love is both you and other coaches are just taking taking pictures of books and articles they've read and sharing it all and we've got this like repository in there where it's like the best of the best coaching stuff from the internet is just collected because you got 300 diehards who are like nerding out on this stuff and then you get to have the discussion right there on not only hey this is a cool article like you're sharing on social media but hey you want to pick this apart Let's pick it apart. Yeah. And I think that that's the cool thing. Yeah. And then, you know, every, it seems like every week, just making a new dedicated channel to talk about, go deep on one topic. Like we just created like the core strengthening and coordination channel just to really talk about what's going on in the axial compartment with the, you know, very nebulous core. We have like the strength and conditioning channel, biomechanics channel, like the fascia channel, like where, again, anytime someone's been exposed to an interesting study, a um, YouTube video, a book, you know, a podcast on that topic, boom, just deposit it in there for the greater good to digest and up their awareness. It is phenomenal. And we're, we just get better when people join. That's really what, what it is all about. So I would keep it at a dollar a day because it's more the strength of the, the contributors and community than it is about making, you know, a buck. That's right. So we're just trying to get it the best coaches resource possible. If you're interested, check it out. Um, none of the BS of, you know, other running sites or message boards or what have you. You just got coaches trying to coach. So <laughs> if that sounds appealing, hop on board, you know, get on board before inflation hits. There you go. It's going to hit sometime. We're holding off as long as we can. That's right. <laughs> All right. So this week, let's dive into our topic, sympathetic overdrive, how to get out of stressing out. Whew. All right. Taking a big bite of the apple today, Steve-O. All right. So maybe, John, I'm going to open up for you. Let's start with defining that first term for maybe listeners who aren't uh, familiar with it, sympathetic overdrive. Well, you, we have the two systems, right? Parasympathetic, that's our rest and digest. That is the preferred state of the body. But then we have our sympathetic state, which is the flight or fight, stressed out, adrenals going, you know, uh, aggravated, quote unquote, you're turned on, hyped up state. And, you know, it's always a balance between shutting on or turning on and shutting off, right? But a lot of times what we see is this excitement or activation of the sympathetic nervous system, especially in today's day and age where it's a lot of stimuli coming at us really fast and rapidly allows or does not allow for that turn off to happen. And that's really important. This concept of excite, excitement and inhibition is key. And we see this even in kind of muscle activation, um, as a quick tangent aside, in uh, more proficient uh, sport performers. They will have a really keen and excellent ability to turn on and turn off the muscles in a movement pattern. Uh, less, um, you know, advanced uh, athletes, they tend to keep the muscle on the whole time and not in a heightened state, like really potent, but in this like low grade chronic state of activation. And then that leads to muscle soreness, tightness, etc. Right. And that's what we want to do is be able to flip the switch, so to speak. Because the sympathetic overdrive means you're constantly just in that low-grade chronic state of stress and being stressed out. And you might not even know it. That might just be your normal. And then we ask people to do stressful things as coaches 
workouts, races, you know, etc. And the potency of which one is able to then conduct themselves in those situation drops way, 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 way down. Yeah, you know, maybe to give uh, listeners some concrete examples, you've probably felt this after a race, right? You race maybe at night, maybe you head over to the, you know, Stanford 5K or 10K or whatever have you, one of those late night races, and then you're just buzzing and you can't go to sleep. You can't like settle down. Your mind is racing. That is like a short term um, you know, demonstration of the sympathetic overdrive, your system is essentially revved up. Yeah. Or like if, if you're studying for finals and you're yep. going through a series of exams and papers and presentations and you're like, your body is teed up and just, you know, primed and ready to execute. And then a week after the exam period ends, your finals ends and you're on vacate or, you know, a break from school, you then all of a sudden just get exhausted and get sick. Exactly. So what we're looking at is often what happens is we almost get stuck in those situations. It's normal to have that sympathetic nervous system activation um, when, you know, you're doing challenging things or difficult things, studying, running, you know, getting ready to go give a speech or presentation or what have you. It's it's getting you prepared. It's saying, hey, this is going to be stressful. We need a lot of energy. Release all the energy. Let's go. But problems arise when that becomes either lingers for t- far too long or it almost becomes our steady state of this chronic, we'll call it moderate, low-grade anxiety sympathetic system where it's always kind of turned on it never fully kind of gets switched off into this recovery state. And when we, either of those, the lingering or the chronic low-grade fever of, of stress, both of those can lead to some really negative outcomes. And then also from a performance standpoint, it means that we can't handle the training or workload that we do. There's been several studies now, especially on college students, that look at injury rates in comparison to stress loads, specifically academic stress loads. And what you see is that as academic stress loads go up around finals, if your your athletic you know um, endeavors don't kind of compensate and go down a little bit, you have an increased injury risk. Why? Because you're now living because of that academic stress load in this kind of sympathetic overdrive state, and you're trying to dump a bunch of more stressors on top of it through your training, and eventually that leads to injury. So a lot of it is how do we manage, you know, getting out of this, um, and also how do we kind of use the stress when we need it, but then, you know, rapidly get back down to this kind of rest, repair, recover state. And that's where like monitoring like HRV is very helpful and valuable because for some athletes and some people, their normal is this kind of chronic overdrive sympathetic state and they don't even know it. And that's just the, you know, how they operate in the world. And then it's different varying degrees of that. And when you look at HRV uh, monitoring and, and such, and it's like someone's HRV is never getting above 60 ever, no matter what, it's not about the training necessarily. It's about them, who they are as a person and how they're perceiving and orienting themselves in the world. And, you know, this isn't just a a case of telling someone to chill out or the Roger Bannister, Hey, go for a hike a couple days before you try to do this really hard thing. You know, more it's how do we identify in a um, very succinct way as coaches, if someone is in that state or staying in that state, and then also what are potential like tools and um, exercises that we can use to help guide them and help them guide themselves out of that state. Exactly. It's how do we, you know, I remember reading this uh, study a long time ago that essentially said elite performers, military sports, etc., are really good on flipping that switch to get out of that state. And <laughs> as coaches, we often do the opposite. 
because think about after tough races or tough, you know, games or competitions or whatever have you, we often in in uh, sometimes unintentionally keep people in that state by stressing out and like putting more negativity on them or criticism or critiquing um, in a negative view, which like puts you more in that overdrive state because you're just like, oh my gosh, now coach is upset with me and I'm going to stress about this. And we've doubled that stress load instead of allowing you to kind of recover, repair, and dissipate. And when this orientation and framework, when you go back and read like Bill Bowerman or, um, you know, Bud Winter, right, from Speed City, um, San Jose State, you know, even Lydiard, and they talk about relaxation. What that is essentially like the what they're using, because actually Bud Winter, right, he was a um, fighter pilot in World War II, and he created this and was exposed to this relaxation program to help turn off the sympathetic overdrive that a lot of fire pilots at war had. And it's this whole body relaxation visualization process that he had all his athletes and sprinters do um, during his 30 years of dominance as the sprint coach at uh, San Jose State. And people don't understand how important that is, that quick inhibition and uh, excitement switch turning to performance. Same thing when like Bowerman talks about, you know, never go too hard. I mean, I was early on coached by one of his athletes, Bob Williams. And, you know, Bob was always very, very concerned about being fresh, being, feeling good. Like, oh, we don't want to get stressed out. Like, because that was ingrained in him by Bowerman. And same thing with Lydiard and his principles where it's like, no, we never want to go over three quarters effort, you know, stay at three quarters effort and blow. Because what happens is if you go too hard and too chronic, and stay too chronic in that sympathetic, you don't adapt. You do hard work, you sweat, you labor, but you you don't complete the second part of the adaptation cycle, which is rest and digest and repair because there's no repair that can happen, right? Because cortisol is just staying in the system versus exiting the system. So it's really interesting when you go back and you read with that lens, they were all talking about this, but they didn't have the terminology that we, scientific terminology and understanding we do today. Yes, exactly. It's like we've we've always understood this going back, but now we understand the science and the underlying stuff behind it. So maybe we talk about, let's talk about the tools and techniques that can allow you to get out of this stressing out state. And I'll start maybe um, with one that I've talked about before, but I think is incredibly important, is the power of debriefing and connecting. Because what happens during when you're stressed, when you're anxious, all of those good things, um, your mind spirals out of control. You're starting to ruminate. You feel the anxiety or the stress, et cetera, et cetera. And it almost, you know, those things almost compound. And what you're trying to do is stop that cycle or just like put a roadblock in front of it to slow it down. And one of the best ways you can do that is by, you know, talking with friends, chit-chatting with your teammates, going on a cool down right after the run, not with your coach to discuss what went wrong, but just kind of letting it out and like talking with friends. The reason this works really well is <laughs> we don't see friends as threats normally, right? They are people that support us kind of no matter what they're our friends if we debriefed with let's say a head coach you rarely interacted with we see them as a threat that increases the stress load when we debrief with friends and just shoot the shit on with them it does the opposite okay it turns on our kind of calm and connect system and we realize, hey, we're okay. It's not the end of the world. We've still got people in our corner. We still belong to this team or this group or what have you. So really utilizing that in both your practices and your uh, competitions or after races is important. And I actually think, you know, John, I remember back back when we started running, there was always like the end of practice, like stretched circle mm, and stuff yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. And I think the stretching itself was probably pointless. <laughs> or, the, or the end of practice ice bath, right? Yeah, yeah. All those are those are pretty pointless. But I think what they did do is they put you in a place where you're either in an ice bath or you're stretching in a circle. And, 
you know, that's not real. Neither of those is that enjoyable of an activity. So what do you do? You kill the time by talking with your friends, by just like interacting and shooting the shit while you're sitting in an ice bath together so you can, you know, get through the 10 minutes and, and get out of there. And I think, you know, again, we can set our practices up so that we can include some of these informal periods where you allow people to chat with your friends and debrief and all that good stuff. Yeah, that concept of unproductive enjoyment is really, really key because like you hear all this stuff. It's like increase your productivity, how to be hyper productive, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, no, we have to also build in time where it's okay just to hang out, legitimately hang out. I remember when I was in high school, my favorite part of practice my senior year when I was my you know best athletic self uh, in high school was we got done as distance runners doing our thing, even if it was like a short shakeout day. Then I just go hang out in the you know high jump pit because it was nice out and you just hang out and you watch the long jumpers do their practice or heckle the, you know, throwers or, you know, all of a sudden you get a a challenge where it's like, all right, we're going to do some silly things. Like I'll throw the shot put if you run a lap type deal. Right. And it, it meant, you know, took from a training stimuli standpoint, nothing, but as far as like getting those positive, um, you know, like motor pathways and serotonin releases in the brain, by creating some bonds of trust with other like-minded and people who you weren't trying to create status with because it's like the throwers didn't give a shit how fast the distance runners run because it's just decontextualized, right? It's super important to have peers and friends who are decontextualized from your everyday. So like for me, I love my kettlebell coach because I go and I talk to him and he has no context whatsoever for this whole running world and running things. He appreciates it. He gets it. He's like, oh, man, that's pretty interesting. All this stuff on stride and training and whatever. But his frame of reference is swinging kettlebells, you know, jujitsu, boxing. And so and I have no reference point for anything of those. But we come together because of the kettlebell training. But it's decontextualized and so fun to go see him every week because of that. And as we age, we tend to get so specialized in our context that we forget to actually have friends or peers outside of our context who's like, it doesn't matter. Like, oh, no one made the Olympic trials or made the U.S. you know team as a pro coach or no one made finals as a you know high school or college coach or whatever. Oh, I suck as a coach. But then you go hang out with, you know, this bloke or this buddy who's just worried about other things in life. And it's like, oh, no context. It's easy entry. And it's that's the key is you're. Um, status is not compromised because that trust and acceptance is always there as you are, as you show up, win, lose, or draw. Yeah, exactly. I think that status part is key is because often we think of threats in a physical standpoint, but often what causes that underlying stress and chronic anxiety is that we're constantly in a status game, right? And especially nowadays, because it's like, oh, how am I getting judged online and social media and all that good stuff, all the crazy stuff. Um, (laughs) But, you know, if you can find places where you don't have to play that status game, you know, those are the places where you're going to be able to turn that stress off. So finding those people, those places, often the people outside of sport who can give you that perspective is vital and helpful to uh, to shutting shutting that stress off and, and getting in a much better state. Yeah, and I mean, that's why I always really appreciate the philosophies of, say, Jesus or Buddha, who it's like, no, man, I as you are is good enough. Like, we accept you. We got love for you no matter what, as you are. Like, you don't need to do anything special, no qualifiers, no hoops to jump through. It is what it is. And that's the deepest bonds you have, like you and I, Steve, or, you know, my other close friends, my wife, it's like, we can fuck up real bad in life or in general or with a tweet or whatever, but still like, no, that's my dude. That's my dude. I got love for him. I mean, you know, that one action doesn't define who they are. It's just like, well, oh, well, (laughs) and you got to have those people in your corner. And as an athlete too, we have to, uh, you know, that they're a critical part of the athlete support network and support team. And, you know, it should be someone that it or some people that they do identify and know who they are, know their role 
and know like, okay, if it's teammates, it's great. Even if it's, um, you know, teammates of a, a different discipline or different sport or past teammates who no longer compete, even though you're competing, what have you is really key. But also to the coach, our role is to be what I, you know, starting to call a calm goofball, you know, at meets and just in general, because I still, I see this a lot where it's like the coach creates the sympathetic state by yelling the split or saying, you got to do this. You got to go. And it's like, you know, what we've seen in the literature is actually when people are executing and performing a difficult task, the best thing to do is just give positive affirmation in the moment. And Vin Lanad does this really well. He just will tell people, excellent. You look great. Phenomenal. And like one word as they come around the track, just reinforcing that this person has it, that they're doing well, even when they start to blow up, it's still encouragement, 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 positivity, no split yelling, no, oh, hey, you got to run this on the next lap, so to speak. Da, 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 da. That's really, you know, a key thing that we as coaches need to bring to race day and also practice and expectation going in um, to uh, races and difficult endeavors, because if we just continually make it about reaching a bar and living up to a certain standard, you know, numerical standard with splits or times, that's going to then shift the climate in your um, coaching world to be, have athletes who are in that sympathetic state and sympathetic overdrive, as well as you as the coach, because now your whole practice and efficacy is, you know, rests on the ability of your athletes to hit these times or these places. And when that's your frame of reference, that's really difficult. And this is, again, something like, say, Mike Smith does really well. He's a total goofball with his athletes, creating this circle of trust and confidence and acceptance and, you know, love for them, no matter how they perform. The fact that they're there and a part and participating and giving it what they have, whether you're, you know, Abdiner all the way down the food chain to the walk-on. It's like, no, you're here. You have status. You're safe. You're protected. I got your back no matter what really vital. And then also being able to have fun with it. Like know when it's serious, being able to turn it on and say, okay, let's focus. And it, it's a serious focus, but also know when to turn it off and just be goofy and, you know, decontextualize. It, exactly. I think, you know, and I think the other part of that that is really important is that your vibe as a coach is contagious, right? So if, if you come like almost when you're that goofball, like you take you turn the temperature down and the messages that you're sending again, simple communicate very clearly when we know in a stressed state, like if we see our coach stressed as well and we see them freaking out or worried or panicked, even if we don't maybe like consciously recognize that like our subconscious picks up on that as like oh the person who's in charge the person who has power or the person who like we look up to is is stressed out and freaked out so therefore i should be stressed out and freaked out so you really like your body language your manners your mannerisms like the things you say are very critical in that kind of sensitive period around competition so to me it's again what message are you communicating what what vibe are you trying to give off and that can do a go a long way for influencing where people stand from a stress standpoint yeah it's this kind of middle way steve and i were talking about a little bit offline and it's like you can say you can be apathetic and go hey you know you're good as you are you don't need to do anything don't care how you what your outcome is, or you can be the complete polar opposite, which is like the outcome matters, all this training and effort, you have to now do this, you have to, you have to, you have to, but it's the middle path where it's like, hey, look, the outcome does matter. We have been training and practicing for it. You have this, you got this, give it your best shot. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. You don't know what the outcome is going to be, but control the controllables, which is giving it your best shot with the preparation you have. If you can walk away doing that, then we have succeeded, you have succeeded. And so it's reframing and recontextualizing what the purpose of the activity is for the athlete. But when we take that surface level view, we tend to then create either these highly apathetic states or these highly stressed out states when we wanna find that middle path for that individual. Some people might need to be a little bit more 
numerical focus to give them a clear, concrete pathway towards how to achieve an objective. And some people might need, you know, a little bit more of that stress or strain or expectation um, taken off them. And that's the art of coaching is knowing where that individual sweet spot is. Because that's what we're always looking for is that sweet spot, which is somewhere in the middle between the two polar extremes. Yeah, exactly. You're looking for that sweet spot. And as you said, that the path is the middle way. Okay, so we've got connection, cohesion, debriefing, your own behavior as as a coach, like some other things that are really important for, again, flipping this switch. And this actually applies really well to running is I'll go in this direction, which is <laughs> nature is your friend. Mm. Yes. Or was uh, I had an athlete when I was coaching college, what she call it? She called it um, uh, uh, like nature therapy. That's what she called yeah, it. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and there's there's a ton of great research behind this, which essentially shows that for whatever reason, when we get outside and in nature and that can be as simple as, you know, seeing some trees and all that greenery Um when that happens, it's almost like that hits this deeply ingrained system in our brain that says, oh, okay, we're, we're, we're okay. We're home. Like, and there's actually some fascinating science that shows like we often adopt a slightly different gaze, which has a attention restoring ability when we look at greenery and trees and nature and mountains and all, all of that good stuff, we have almost like the soft gaze instead of the hard gaze of our, our kind of manufactured world. There's also science that shows, again, it has a uh, stress reducing and flipping that switch, that parasympathetic switch to kind of, you know, get you in a state of repair and recovery. So what's one of the best things you can do It's again, Go on some jogs at a park, go on a cool down in the woods, whatever have you that is nearby, you know, go on a nice nature path. If you're still stressed out and you're, you're training, like, okay, maybe you can't do another run, but go on a nice walk in outside, go read a book on a park bench, whatever have you, but things to get you in nature. This is again, one of the best things you can do for for toning down that sympathetic system and getting back on, turning on that, that rest, repair, recover system. Yes. Even just having plants inside (laughs) can help as well. Like again, going back to Mike Smith, like, uh, you know, I call him the gardener because if you go to his office at NAU, he has like tens, like 50, 60 cacti in his office, right? Cause his office is very like an any track office. It's just four walls, there's a little window that looks out at the, the, the NAU track, but it is, is a very harsh environment, right? And so to soften it, to dampen it, to make it more inviting, so to speak, he's populated with cacti. Like, <laughs> it's great. <laughs> I mean, that is so, so key. That's, you know, one thing I always did when I was coaching like at Portland State, right? It's this underfunded, underappreciated mid-major, you know, university with a haphazard athletic department. And it's in the middle of downtown Portland and, you know, there's a certain edge to the campus, right? It's a commuter campus. So it has this edge, this vibe, this very, um, you know, tactile, uh, abrasive feeling to it. Yeah. There's trees and they call it the park blocks and whatever to kind of soften it, but we have forest park right, right there. Right. So it was always like a rush to get the athletes away from that environment to the forest for their easy runs. Not because there's anything, you know, like magical about running easy in forest park. It's just, you're in the forest now and you can literally decompress. You can literally just go breathe a sigh of relief because also you got all these plants that are providing all this elevated, you know, localized oxygen, which is great too. Right. Um, So yeah, it was always really important. That's like what I feel like one of the secrets to like Rob Connor's success at UP. And that's where I learned it from was just always go to the forest, always go to the forest because even in you know an inverse situation like UP where it's a little bit more academically inclined and kids are a little bit more academically teed up, now they go to the forest, they can again decompress and get that nature therapy. It, exactly. I think it's those decompression 
you know, periods or things that we can do to, again, flip that switch, get get out of that. Um, <laughs> let's see. Some other strategies that I think are actually really important here is, you know, you can also do this through regulating your breathing as well, right? So we know this. How You want to know how you get adrenaline? You start hyperventilating, <laughs> That's how you get a stress response. You know, you get you can literally create your own stress response. A lot of uh, shallow, quick breathing can do that. And often, what happens is our breathing rate shifts when when we're in this kind of quiet or this chronic low grade stress standpoint, and we're breathing shallower and quicker than we realize it, which is almost like creating this cycle of like, oh. Shallower, quicker breathing, turn on the stress, keep it going, keep it going. Well, the way to, you know, manipulate that is essentially go the opposite direction. Again, you can use deeper breaths, you can use, you know, box breathing, all sorts of, you know, there's also the, the, um, the, uh, the quick inhale, long exhale, which will do similar things. Um, but anything to kind of manipulate your breathing to like send the signal of like, okay, we're out of this stress state. We're not having this rapid, shallow breathing can do the same thing. Yeah, breathing is vital. The science behind it is very intricate and exciting. And it's more than just say, reading, you know, the oxygen advantage or breath. Those are very good introductions. But one of the key triggers to know if you're sympathetic is can you plug your right nostril and breathe easy and three, free through your left nostril without opening your mouth, right? So, because the left uh, nostril is the sympathetic nostril, and if that's clogged and plugged up, you got a quick and easy hack, so to speak, or identifier that you might be a little bit more sympathetic. Also, too, it's about breathing out. Get everything out, not just the carbon dioxide but also the unused oxygen that's flowing in the lungs. Like when I was coaching um, athletes at the high school level and they were asthmatic all and started to go into an attack and hyperventilate, it was always about getting them to fully, you know, express or exhale, or as I said, wring out like a wet towel, all the gas that is in your lungs. So your body will naturally, once it's out, it will naturally just go in like that's, gas will go there, but you got to get it all the way out. And it's really interesting that you brought up the quick inhale, deep exhale, because this is also something Bowerman taught with his runners. He was like, nope, I want you to be able to breathe in and then just take a humongous breath out and like forceful exhale for about five or six strides in the middle of a race before you're going to kick. And it's interesting because it's like, that's something that worked right? And he knew it worked, but now we know the science why. And so there was always this joke about, you know, organ runners around this time, like they're always like loud breathers right before they kick. That's how you knew they're going to (laughs) go. It's really interesting to see that uh, in, you know, some of the literature or even Bud Winter, again, same deal, talking about these deep, long breaths out. And again, it's, you're talking five, six seconds, like as long as you can. And that uh, ability to exhale fully is more a symptom of being in sympathetic state versus, or excuse me, uh, parasympathetic state versus when you go sympathetic, you have this like, I need air. (laughs) And it's a lot of activity with little achievement because you're not really getting that much exchange in of the gases of new oxygen and carbon dioxide and other gases being expressed. It's just this really shallow superficial. And so it, again, continues to cascade and escalate because you're contracting your diaphragm poorly to try to get air in, but because you haven't let it out, you can't really get the air in. And it just, you know, it's almost like you're drowning in oxygen, which is, you know, wild. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It is crazy. And it's, uh, as, as you said, it's a fascinating new science. So there's still lots of, lots to, um, you know, it's interesting, though, as well, like the Bowerman thing. I remember way back in the day, Tom Telez telling me to do the same thing. He's like, before you kick, you know, do this breath. And I'm like, why in the world are we doing this? But it it must have been like, you know, I'm sure Bowerman and like Telez loved Bowerman. So he probably learned it from there. But it's like 
these these ideas or concepts that just come through right where it's like oh this works we should do this you know yeah and that's the great thing about the you know the pioneers of coaching is like they understood what worked they couldn't articulate with specificity or scientifically why because they didn't have the measuring devices and studies and capabilities but they knew like this stuff works so we're just gonna do that (laughs) (laughs) exactly and that's like you know Vern Gambetta always says it like you know there's nothing new under the sun like oh yeah we know this worked but then we got away everyone got away from it because some something affirmed why this this one thing worked and so we over focused on this one thing because of this enlightened awareness or study about uh, this area that worked. And we forgot these other three things that worked that we didn't necessarily have a, you know, audible or articulate answer for yet. And now we come back and we go, oh, now we have an articulate answer for it. And we, oh, let's do all this again. So it's, <laughs> it's very interesting to see this cycle and pattern. Yeah, it, it is fascinating. Yeah. Okay, so we've got now we've got breathing added to the list. What else are we missing here, John? Uh, to how to so get out another another one that's key as a coach that you can use is are the accessory muscles activated and actively tense or tight, right? So you hear this a lot in sprinting. Um, you know, you want to have what they call like that sleepy look about your face. And there's a, a, a good photo. That was posted recently. Um, I forget where I saw it, but it was of, um, you know, Marcel Jacobs, the 100 meter champion from Italy, and then two of his competitors at the Nationals. And you look at them point blank. They're coming on. It's a frontal view photo. And like Jacobs is just completely relaxed in the face. Like it has looked like he is just hanging out, waiting for the bus versus his two competitors, tense, strained, gritting their teeth, everything, their necks contracted, et cetera, right? And what we know is like the more proficient performers understand where to put activation and of conscious contraction of muscle versus less proficient performers tend to activate the accessory muscles as well to help with the movement. And that's the key is we want to put all our energy. And that's what old timers said when like you're tense in the wrong places, it wastes energy, put all your energy in the muscles that you need to actually make the movement happen versus distribute your energy all over the place. So, and then what does that do, right? When we think about lactate and lactate shuttle, well, if every muscle is tense and producing, you know, going through the Krebs cycle, producing pyruvate and lactate, well, where can you shuttle it to? Nowhere. (laughs) It's just going to build up. (laughs) So if the hands are relaxed, like, you know, Bud Winter would always talk about, and I talking about Bud Winter because I just reread his Relax and Win book and how to be, so you want to be a spinner book. And it's like, he would talk about that slack jaw. The hands are always, always, always just limp, limp hands, relax. And how many times do you see runners with the fists just in these like balls, contracted stress balls, right? Versus the arms do swing because of the actual torsion that happens in the power stroke and contact with the ground. You don't necessarily need to forcefully swing them throughout the whole gait cycle. At one point, yes, there's a thrust, but that thrust comes more from the axial compartment and cavity. And when this is, again, a quick aside, something we're talking about in high depth in the Scholar House, or Scholar Clubhouse in the Perfect Stride mini course that's going on. Because this is something I've been researching for years and years and years and trying to understand better. And it's, it's, it's small, subtle details make all the difference in the world. It's one reason why Abby Steiner so darn fast I mean, we were able to codify why her stride that looks a little different, but it actually looks a lot more like Michael Johnson's stride and why that's such an effective stride pattern, because when she's contracting and where she's contracting, like Michael Johnson, gives a high reactivity and spring in her step. And so she doesn't tire as much at the end of a race. And you'll see this often, like we saw with Michael Johnson, first phase, maybe not the you know first person out of the blocks or out of the first phase of their sprint. But man, their their deceleration phase is not as aggressive and not as potent as their competitors who are now uh, muscling it and tightening up. So that's really key, like getting athletes, especially in the what I call the accessory department, which is going to be the neck, face, and the arms, to not just be turned on and lit up. Because what that is, it's you're bracing, right? Your body is physically bracing. And being like, I need to create tension for protection, but then that wastes energy and it continues to show, okay, you're in this braced state 
and now you're stressed out and continue to be stressed out until you let release. And it is a total release. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought up that because it's also like the brain will often follow where the body goes. So it's like you said, is if you start tightening up and tensing up, well, what message are you sending? You're like, oh, we're stressed, like dig and grit through this, which is often the opposite. And you, you know, I saw the same thing when you watch, you mentioned Abby Steiner, but if you watched uh, Sydney McLaughlin's um, 400 meter hurdle world record, like she is the master at relaxing and letting go of tension under high stress and high fatigue. Like the 400 hurdles is a tough race, especially that final oof, hundred oof, yeah. where, you know, and she's running 51 points. <laughs> you're, you're just fatigued and kind of falling apart, but, and trying to hurdle things at the same time, but she's just, you know, holding it together and holding it together in a relaxed way. And I think, you know, we've often talked about this in sprinting, but it applies in everything. If you walk around in a tense state or if you're sitting in a tense state, your body like follows your or your brain follows through. It says, oh, we're tense, like be stressed. There is something dangerous around us because what did what was tension for? Like often what happens is you'd encounter you know, some crazy, you know, thing that was going to eat you or attack you and you'd tense up really quickly before starting to move because it was almost a way of like, oh, remember what it's like to activate these muscles. Okay, they work. Now go. And um, <coughs> and what happens is now we just tense up for no reason or for not good reasons often. And it sends that stress signal. So relaxing into it, it's why I always you know, would teach my runners. I'm like, you got to learn how to shake out your hands and arms in the midst of races, especially longer races. And sometimes I would use that as a cue because they look tense and you'd be like, okay, what do you do? Well, you can think like, okay, I got to relax. Or you can just, you know, shake things out or change your arm carriage or what have you, your hand carriage so that you're almost telling your, you know, convincing your brain. It's like, okay, we're not as stressed as you think we are. We've, we're relaxed. We've loosened up. And that, I mean, the quick hack right now is like, as you're listening, like check your traps. Are your traps taut? Are they tight? Do you, do you feel like you're bringing your um, shoulders up towards your ears, right? Because that's creating a brace is creating a posture of protection around your head, right? So the key is, is to turn the traps off. And a lot of times we talk about the lats, like packing the lats or turning lats on, like pulling this concept where you're pulling the shoulders, just the shoulders, not the thoracic cavity, not the rib cage, down and back to create this opening. And that's the thing you want to do is put the shoulders back and then actually press kind of your rib cage or your sternum forward. And if you do it and you've been chronically tight, you'll feel this stress and this the stretch and the strain, so to speak, of a, of a stress. Uh, excuse me, of a stretch in the front of your chest where your necks meet your pecs essentially. But right now, like that's nine times out of 10, most people's traps are just so activated that you don't even know it. And it's like, no, those things should be limp and loose. But if they're taut and tight or you're constantly like, oh yeah, I got, you know, neck pain or what shoulder pain. Usually it's just from overactive traps. Yeah, it's it's just so fascinating how the body and brain connect and the stress and the movement connect. So, it you know, that gets me to the other part, which is like the awareness is also important. Like often we sit around with that like tight, tense traps or whatever have you, other stuff. Um, and it becomes our default and our normal. So we don't notice it until we bring awareness to it. And it's the same with, other pieces of this kind of stressed overactive stress state is you're often don't realize you're in this chronic stress, you know, chronic anxiety state until you bring awareness to it. And you're like, Oh, that's right. I am stressed or, Oh, you know, this muscle is tight or yes, I'm holding on to a lot of tension. So the other thing that I think is really important is like checking in 
is doing, you know, what they'd call in mindfulness or meditation, some sort of body scan every once in a while. Where are you right now? What is your state? Because sometimes awareness will actually help cure the thing because you can say, oh, right, my shoulders are up and tight as I sit here in this meeting. Like, now I know this. Now I can fix this or like relax into it. Yeah, the ability to make corrections and people have to understand it's going to take a long time at first because it's a a point of identifying that state and then identifying how to get out of it. And then also to being willing to like sense that you have, um, you know, atrophied or, you know, returned to that overstressed or, you know, chronically tight state in that area. And then being able to say, okay, I need to now readjust and turn it off. And that's a lot of overuse injuries, right? Are chronic activation injuries. Like the muscle never gets to be turned off because, you know, you'll hear, oh, they're not activating their glutes or their glutes aren't on. Well, it's about coordination on and off at the right time. And so, yeah, if someone's glutes aren't on in the gait cycle when they should be on, the body's really smart. It has backups on backups on backups. So what's going to do? It's going to then turn on other ancillary or accessory muscles unnecessarily and then keep them on so you won't fall down because the body does have certain um, program directives and don't fall down is one of the program directives <laughs> and it will do everything that's possible in its power to make sure that does not happen no matter how you step where you step what have you and it has the arms you know to put out to protect the, the thoracic cavity in the brain if you do fall down like it does literally does not care if you hurt the arm or the leg. What it cares is that the internal organs and especially the master organ, the brain, are not adversely impacted by a sudden fall or you know dropping of your weight down you know to the ground. It, exactly. So I think that's that's another helpful um, way to flip that switch and get out of that stress state. Okay, what else are we missing here, John? Oh, man. Um, you know, the other thing that's really valuable is when we're talking about awareness is journaling, right? Writing it down, like going in and have part of that quote unquote mindful practice. The mindful practice just means an awareness, right? So journaling your thoughts or, you know, having a note, like I just have a running notepad where it's like everything and anything like appointments, thoughts, concepts, you know, dates, whatever is on that general running notepad that's always with me. And then I have other places that I might put items that fall onto the notepad, whether it's, you know, it's a trigger of a sentence for, you know, my, my journaling at night where it's like, oh, I thought this thought throughout the day, let me expand on it. Or I came across this idea, I wrote it down, let me go in and read this article and then expand on it. But having that time and place to, you know, get to know your thoughts and get to know your perception that one-on-one -on -one time with yourself, that me time is really yeah. important. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think so. And I think it comes back to that awareness piece, right? It's like, what does journaling do? It allows you to bring awareness to the situation of often what you're not. And then the second part is kind of related to that debrief we talked about earlier is it allows you to process things. And often process things in a non-threatening way because it's just you and your journal or you and your recollections. And often, we know this, is like when we write about something, it allows us to wrestle with it and make sense of it. And it provides just enough like space so that we can do so where we're not wholly attached to it. You know, like when we maybe try and wrestle it with ourselves in our head. Often that backfires because the emotion is right there with us. When we're journaling, we create a little space with that emotion so we can actually wrestle and deal with the thing objectively. And that that can again bring down that temperature of the sympathetic overdrive or um, you know, and and into a more parasympathetic state. Yeah, the concept think and ink is one I've you know, grasped onto and exposed to early. But so much of this is also about letting go, releasing, expelling, expiring, getting out. So like I have a lot of thoughts and ideas, you know, because I'm a creative type person throughout the day, but I need to get the idea or the thought out 
to make room for the new idea. And if I don't, and I just have it wrestling in my head and wrapping around in there, then I have no room for the new concept or idea to come out. And then you can't make the interdisciplinary connections because you just have, you're so hyper-focused on this one idea or you're overemphasizing it, right? So more than anything, it's like, you know, respiration, uh, digestion, thoughts, get them out, get it out and have a place where it goes. Like, you know, when we um, get our processed food out, it goes in the toilet, right? When we get our respiration out or, or our air out, it just goes out our mouth. When we get our ideas out, it goes on this pad or paper or this um, notebook. But that's really a good way to end the day or to wind down the day is to deal with your own junk, so to speak, rather than going on social media and being exposed to a bunch of other people's junk. <laughs> I mean, exactly. And you know, that brings maybe this is a side tangent, but this is really important. The worst, probably worst way to get out of this stress state is to go on social media because that just makes it worse. Yeah. <laughs> it just contributes to it, so, which is often our default response after stress is just to start scrolling through Instagram, Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. Well, and it's like cigarettes or alcohol, right? It gives yep. you a, a quick dopamine hit, yes, but not serotonin. Yes, exactly. So often the things that we default to are not the best things. The other two other things that, that kind of come to uh come to mind as well is um <laughs> a anything that will ex it will lead to the experience of awe the emotion of awe um will give you that serotonin bump so even something as simple as looking at pictures of i don't know the grand canyon or something that's just like wow or the earth from space like those experiences, even just looking at pictures can get you out of that stress state because it creates that sensation of awe and then also gives you perspective of like, oh, the world is wonderful and big. It's not just me that, you know, in my situation and my stress that that is, you know, over the top and um, and mattering as well. So I think that is really important. And then. The other one, <laughs> the other thing that I think is really important as well is doing something that engages your attention where you feel almost absorbed in the task can also be a way out of this stress. So the way I like to think of it is if you think of like an old school craftsman who's just building or tinkering. Like they're not stressed because they are absorbed in the craft itself and enjoying that. Now, if you don't like, you know, again, being a craftsman, you can have the same experience picking up a good book, often a good fiction book and getting absorbed in it. And that will, again, transfer you out of your kind of own little narrow stressed world into a world that doesn't have that and will drop down that sympathetic drive. Yeah, I mean, you nailed it right there. Like for me, having been forced by the pandemic to develop my own home gym has been great because I'll just go in and just start moving with things like moving with the kettlebell, moving with the band, moving with, you know, a barbell, just moving and just going in and feeling what's activated through that pathway of that moving pattern. This isn't training. This isn't get in the rep and set count like this with this, you know, tight recovery or blah, 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 and count the numbers. It's just exploring movement, right? And that's, we have to have that ability in some ways to be able to explore and like you said, have the sense of awe or wonder. But when it's always about doing something as a prescription or a recipe to get only towards, you know, satisfying or setting us up to receive or be able to um, compete for an outcome that creates a chronic stress. So it's like a movement practice, like why yoga can be a beneficial thing for us, like say runners or what have you is you're in there with a group of people, you're just doing it. There's no, it, you need to just have it just be, no, we're not here to like lengthen the muscles and view it as a part of training. Like 
we're just in here just doing some random ass shit <laughs> that is just going to decompress us. You know, like one of my favorite things I uh, did with the high school kids that I was working with this year was we'd have, um, uh, you know, team trivia night, so, so to speak, at the end of an easy practice, right? And we just break the kids up into two teams in the groups that I was coaching. And we just, I just have trivia and people would answer trivia, would keep points. They got a little candy and it trivia about a lot of random things on this track, right? It was just like silly trivia, like old school stuff, stuff that was more contemporary that they could get. But it was just fun and silly and a good way to end that kind of recovery or practice in a relaxed way so I could send them off like that. And there's, there's value to those simple activities in a group setting that are fun, but would have little to zero consequence because it's just like, you know, going to pub night trivia, right? It's like, eh, you win, you lose, whatever, no big deal. We just, we, we had some fun. Exactly. That low stakes, low costs, yeah. like just good old fashioned fun, game nights, trivia nights, all those things work really well. Yeah. Like ultimate Frisbee is one that my high yep. school coach used to do. Yep, exactly. Yeah. It just gets you out of that stress state and into a spot where you can, again, a lot of it is like get you into a spot where you're like enjoying the moment, not concerned with like your status and being judged and all that stuff and just having fun. And when you do that, when you put people in that spot, they're allowed to kind of let go mm. and mm -hmm. enjoy what they're doing instead of being in this chronic, you know, stressed, parasympathetic overdrive state. And, then, you know, you see that with a lot of high achievers and high performers, right? Yes. They play games to win. They play games for status. And status can be time, can be place, can be money, can be whatever. But, yeah, that low stakes, low cost stuff, it, that helps, yeah, to alleviate that tension, so to speak, or that, you know, over sympathetic impulse. Exactly. Okay. Well, we have given the people <laughs> a, a bunch of different tools to use both in your life and your athletes, you know, from breathing to environment, to debriefing, to experiencing awe, to you know, having something you get absorbed in to using movement and muscles and tension uh, to be able to resolve and send the message. There's a whole heck of a lot of tools. And the only maybe concluding advice I'd give you is, is the best thing you can do is have and develop a wide array of tools to have at your disposal because you never know what's going to work and what's not going to work. Yeah, spot on. You need, as Dan Path calls, a big menu a list of menu items and you got to pick and choose from the menu about different tools strategies in the moment that might help these individualized people cope or de-escalate and really it's a lot of de-escalation and we're talking about chronic escalation here from this over sympathetic state and the one thing i'll offer is if you as a coach are going to tell an athlete and say to an athlete relax don't just say that off the cup haphazardly with a very general definition. Develop pr prior to it a very specific definition for that cue. If you're going to say relax as a cue, have it mean something super specific to that person. So you can use relax with everyone, but everyone has a different thing that should relax, whether it's physical, psychological, breathing, what have you. But just idly yelling relax, which is well intended, and I hear it all the time, which is great. It's like, well, someone is highly focused and should be a little keyed up and teed up in this moment. And telling them to relax might, in a general way, might not be the best thing. Or being like, oh, I should, you know, I see their hands are, they're tight. Oh, relax your hands. Well, again, it's a feedback in like the performance moment that might not have that tactile, um, you know, trigger. So what we want to do is, again, identify what those tension, that area of tension is for that individual. And then when you do say relax, have it mean something super, super specific. Exactly. Tying. It's almost like you're tying the, the cue to something that they can actually do versus the, hey, just relax. And yeah. then they're just like, what, what do you mean? Do I look stressed? Like, how do I do this? And it just makes things worse yeah i mean it's like cues are great because everyone always asks me what cue do you give what cue do you give how do you cue this and it's like every cue is individualized like i've told a kid cheeseburgers and cheeseburgers has for an athlete a specific meaning for them 
And that got them focused and oriented in the right way. Like, I mean, I never thought I'd use the cute cheeseburgers, but it, it worked and it, it was individualized to them. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone else, but again, it doesn't matter what the cue is. It matters the meaning behind the cue. Exactly. Exactly. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for listening. As always, check out the Scholar program and the Scholar Clubhouse. We appreciate you guys. And until next time, best of luck in coaching.